Uh, I think that is fair As to I say. say. Hands to kiss and babies to shake. <laughs> but uh, you know, I think my record speaks for itself. It's a really good question. Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio in St. Louis is... Fellow reporter Joe Manis. And one of the best guests we've ever had who really seemed to enjoy our, our new theme music. <laughs> yeah, I was dancing to it before uh, before we uh, started here. Steve Tilley, uh, president of Strategic Capital Consulting, a governmental affairs lobbying firm based here in Missouri. And a former House speaker, yes. but um, also a, a native of Perryville, Missouri, which might be the most important attribute. Absolutely. And he's, and he's not a lawyer. You're, no, I am you're proud a, to be a non-lawyer. Opt- aren't you an optometrist? I'm an optometrist. So thank you for coming back. If you if you go Google the 2013 show that we had on uh, with now former Speaker Tilly, I think it is one of the best shows we've ever done. He was very candid. We, we're not going to be talking about Rush Limbaugh or Cairo, Illinois on this show, though. <laughs> Thank so you. We're, we're, we're kind of past that, and nobody really remembers those things anymore. <laughs> but um, just for our listeners, we're recording this on May 22nd, and by the time it airs, it'll probably be early June. But... We wanted to talk with you today about a couple of things that happened in the Missouri legislature in the last week, but we, we think you would provide especially good insight on. The first, obviously, is the resignation of House Speaker John Deal and the um, inauguration of House Speaker Todd Richardson and also the, the fight over right to work. Well, for, what, first, I want to kind of set things up a little bit. Um, Tilly, as, as he mentioned, used to be in the House. He is now a key lobbyist and represents the labor on right to work sure represent the afl yeah and um also though is close or knows many of the players in the legislature this just kind of gives a backdrop of all this sure so i'm served with a lot of them yeah either served or recruited did you recruit or i don't did you recruit john deal to run for office you know the first time i met john uh i met him at the time scott mushaney was the state representative and it was towards the end of the session. I can't remember what year, but he came up, and I was uh, on the dais, and that's the first time I met John. Yeah, he, he yeah. used to be on the St. Louis County Board of Elections. He was actually chairman. Yeah. Uh, he was chairman. That's when I first got to know him well. I knew him from before, so, but I dealt with uh, Deal a lot. So, uh, yeah, just very simply, what did you make of his, his sudden resignation? We're not going to go into the nitty-gritty details. You can find those we on, have. We already have. <laughs> you can find them on other shows. Right. But as a former House Speaker, like, and then somebody who I assume you're pretty close with, what was it like to, to see that, that 48 hours unfold? It was sad for me for multiple reasons. Um, one is, and first and foremost, foremost, uh, he's a good friend. And I'm good enough to where I know his family, and they're a great family, good people. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I've played, uh, I, I've served with John. And, you know, the one thing that that struck me about John, it took me about a week to realize that when John got to the house that, uh, one, his intellect was so superior to most people. He's just a really smart guy. Uh, very smart, very talented. His strategic sense was very, very good in understanding the the legislative process. And you know, I, I, I as as floor leader and a speaker, I valued his advice. 
uh, you know, whenever I was speaker, he was one of probably two or three people that could come and go through the speaker's office anytime they wanted to. Uh, and, uh, you, you know, so one, it was, he was a good friend. Um, two, I mean, it, it's sad to see it for the party because, you know, I thought he was a good leader. I mean, the, the, the facts stand for themselves. He, he uh, helped bring about the largest Republican majority in the, the history of the state. He was instrumental in redistricting, which is uh, why we have six Republican congressmen and two Democratic congressmen, the, the reason why uh, Carnahan is no longer in Congress. Uh, and, I mean, he's done a lot of really good things, uh, helped uh, lead the override on the, uh, the tax cut. And so, you know, it's sad to see all of his accomplishments and all his potential and ability be marred by a mistake. And, and, you know, and that's the tough thing about politics is, you know, we're all human beings. And you, I think both of you would readily admit that you'd hate to be defined by the worst point in your life, mm-hmm. right? I mean, think right. about, I mean, would you like, Joe, for the worst mistake you ever made in your life, to be what defines you, right? You know, and I had a really good conversation with my parents, who, who to me are perfect, okay, uh, and they were like, Steve, we made some mistakes in our life, and we certainly wouldn't be want to be defined by them. So, you know, I hope that after you know this passes, that people will look at John's body of work mm-hmm. and what he's contributed to his community and to the state and, and uh, measure him by that, not by a weak moment. Well, one of the things that I thought you might be able to provide some perspective on is, okay, the bottom line was he he ended up resigning because of some text exchanges with a 19-year-old intern, which were um, sexual uh, in nature. Now, my question is, A, before social media, this might not even have come out, but B, um, as someone who has been caught in that bubble too, uh, different, but you know, it, being at House Speaker has its shares of pressures. What happened? I mean, what would I mean? Just in general, what causes someone who's in a powerful position to make a mistake like that when there's such a high um, likelihood that it's going to come out somehow? Yeah, I, I, I think you, I go back to the answer is no different than what causes a banker to make a mistake okay. or a doctor to okay. make a mistake. Okay. We're all humans. Right, right. You know, and the mere fact that one of them's called Speaker of the House and the other one's called John Deal or Steve Tilley or Joe Mann is, right. you know, it's, it, you know, we're all human. And... Uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, it's just really, really a tough situation. You know, there are a lot of pressures in that office. And, you know, you're pulled 110 different directions. He asked for it. He ran for the position. He got it. So, I, you know, it's hard to, hard to blame that. But, you know, he just had a situation where he exhibited very, very poor judgment. And, and what I would like to bring to point to is, is, you know, whenever this was going on in the last couple of days, and you know it blew up rather quickly, right? It I did. Mean, it right. came yes. out on a Wednesday, and the resignation occurred. Yeah, Friday on, morning. Uh, well, yeah, technically on to, Thursday to about one or two. When, when Bob Griffin resigned, that was like a very slow resignation process that took almost two or three years. Yeah, and this was almost exactly when he officially stepped down, which was Friday morning. It was almost exactly 48 hours from when that story first appeared yeah, on the it was, website, it was, about ten fifteen. It was unbelievable, and and I would tell you, you know, John uh, 
took advice from a lot of people during those 24 hours or 48 hours. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you firsthand, there was a lot of them that said, hey, you need to apologize and move forward, but don't resign. Mm -hmm. Don't, you know, fight it out. And to John's credit, he's like, you know what? I made a mistake. A lot of times politicians say they're sorry, but don't really accept the consequences. And and then, you know, I'm not going to be that kind of person. And so, you know... You know, I I believe he handled it post-scandal is about as good as you could have. Yeah. Well, I want to play a clip that you actually made in 2012. And I'm not just saying this because you're sitting in front of me, but because I actually believe it's one of the better opening day speeches that I've heard. Mainly That's, because thank you. you're you welcome. And I'm, I think it was notable because it wasn't just a recitation of what you were going to do. Yeah, those it, are boring. <laughs> it actually dealt with the fact that you weren't running for re-election, that you had gone through some turmoil in your personal life, sure. and that you were telling the people, you know, some advice going forward. And when I say the people, um, I mean your fellow legislators. Let's take a, a clip of that. And I can guarantee you that your contact list has undoubtedly grown since you've started this job. But don't lose track of the people who care, truly care about you for, you, for you being you. And I stand here today with full acknowledgement that I lost track for a time, and it's something that I will regret. But don't let that happen to you. Focus your time on the people who love you for who you are, not what title you've attained. So I imagine John Deal was in the audience when you were making that speech, as well, along with maybe some other legislators who have made similar mistakes. Did they just not listen to you? Or do you think that sort of the pressures of being a legislator are so great that, you know, a, a helpful advice from the then House Speaker just is not going to be able to calm the tide, so to well, speak? Well, I was trying to reflect on my mistakes. And, you know, you, like your parents say, learn from my mistakes yeah. so you don't have to make the same. And, you know, even listen to that, I started to tear up a little bit because I reflect on just really bad decisions I made within my personal life of not not keeping balance in my life, traveling too much, thinking that politics was more important than anything I had to do at home. And, and, it, and I had ramifications. And, and thankfully, my daughters and, and even my ex-wife, that, who I'm still dear friends with, uh, have forgiven me for. And, um, and, you know, I was trying to make a point to them that I didn't want to stand up there and talk about we're going to do A, B, C, D. Right. I really wanted to tell them, hey, look at me. I'm at, I'm, I'm at the top of the ladder in politics besides the governor, and I made mistakes. And I'm telling you that you're going to be faced with some of the same challenges that I was faced with, and, and don't make the same mistake. Now, that speech came a few months after you dropped a bid for lieutenant governor right. that many people thought you would be the favorite for. Um, looking back, um, do you are you sorry at all that you ended up not no absolutely, not running or becoming lieutenant governor? I, absolutely, I get asked that question so often, and and my response is if Peter Kinder called me and said I'm going to give you the lieutenant governorship, I would say no way. You know, I mean, I mean, the perfect example is. You know, I got a divorce in 2011, so my daughters were a senior and one of them was a sophomore. Uh, When we got a divorce, uh, the girls chose to live in Perryville, which is where I live. And so I had an opportunity to prove to my daughters that, you know, what I always knew, but sometimes my actions didn't always, is they're number one to me. 
And uh, I wouldn't trade those two years for a gazillion dollars. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't trade it for lieutenant governor. I wouldn't trade it for governor. I wouldn't trade it for president of the United States. Yeah, because okay? – And that's an honest, sincere response. Well, because I, I, I mention that because I, I see two paths that past speakers have taken. Your path that you took, you decided to get out of politics. Your personal life seems to have stabilized. Well, he's in politics, I mean, but just in a different Out of electoral right. politics. <laughs> right. You mean you have a very lucrative lobbying career? I'm, I'm assuming you're still seeing eye patients. It seems like you did find that balance. And then you also see someone like your predecessor, Rod Jetton. And I'm not just spreading rumors here. I read his book. He's been very open about this, that as soon as he left office, his personal life just completely disintegrated, sure. even worse than when it was there. Right. So, you know, how do you kind of, I mean, I, I'm assuming that Everything I said about you initially about your personal life stabilizing is, yeah, is no, true. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm happier. Yeah. I'm as happy as I've ever so been. So how do you get to that path and not take the other path where things keep going downhill after you leave legislative service? Well, I think you go to what I tried to say in that speech is that stay close to the people that really love you and that mean a lot to you. Because those are the people that are going to give you sincere advice, not advice based on what's best for them. And... Uh, you know, I mean, but at the end of the day, sometimes you got to learn from making mistakes. I mean, because as, as great as it sounds to, hey, learn from my mistakes, we all know clearly after the speech people still are making their yeah. own mistakes, and I would expect them to. But, you know, I think for me, I just said, you know what, I'm not happy doing this. And, you know, and I really admire the statewide elected officials who go around the state that, that put in the time and effort because we really, really need good people doing that. Uh, but I just couldn't do it and have balance. My personality is such that it's either I'm all in or I'm all out kind yeah. of a thing. Well, I wanted to – you were actually talking about Jeff Smith in that segment sure. generally. Right. And former we, state senator. Former state senator. He went to jail for lying to the feds about uh, a mailer. You know, has talked was actually. By if you'd have just told the truth, it'd probably been a little fine and no big deal. Well, it may not even fine. I always bring up Joan Barry, yeah, who was running I'm, for the same office. She was involved in some of the same stuff. She I did know. not lie to the feds. People don't even remember. Yeah, <laughs> I know it's crazy, isn't it? <laughs> but when he was and another yeah. very talented, smart guy. Yeah. So when he was on our show, he mentioned maybe why you know somebody who is who was in your position or John Deal's position. Not 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 saying that anybody is a victim here. I want right. to be clear, but may kind of fall into some of the traps that force them to make bad decisions. Um, we have a clip of him right here. From the minute you get elected, like to the Senate, and definitely from the minute you become Speaker, all your jokes get funnier. You get better looking. Everybody wants to be around you, mm-hmm. right? And again, that could be very intoxicating, and you begin, I think, in a lot of cases, to believe your own the hype uh, about yourself, and so. When that happens, an opportunity presents itself, and no one has said no to you for a long time. Mm -hmm. If you want to get on a private plane and go see a golf tournament somewhere, there's somebody to to help you do that. Now, assuming that you're probably still doing golf tournaments because – but you're on the other side, essentially. I mean, does does Jeff Smith have a point there that some of the trappings of being in a high leadership position can – prompt people to make really, really, really bad decisions? You know, it, it certainly is a different, almost a different universe from what the average person has to deal with. You know, and, and Jeff comes from it as a senator, uh, which every senator is important and can make a huge difference, but it's five times worse at being speaker because I've been a state rep, been majority leader, and been speaker, and uh, 
it's i mean it's he's exactly right on the speaker thing and and if you don't stay grounded with the people you love and your family it's really can be difficult for anybody i mean you put anybody in a situation like that and you know it's it's not an easy situation to deal with well with all that backdrop that we've given i'm interested in your take you were there as a lobbyist uh you among your clients is the missouri aflcio And before we get into the weeds about right to work, but just looking at the whole landscape of the last, let's say, 10 days of the General Assembly, had you seen anything like that? And and as you were there as a lobbyist, did you have any general observations? Now, this is before the deal stuff erupted the last 48 hours. You know, in my eight years in the House, and then now three to four as a lobbyist, I'd never seen anything like it in the last week of session, week and a half, really, where where nothing was getting done. and then the the John Deal issue came up, and it was it was exacerbated. I, I'd never seen anything like it. I mean, I mean, literally, when's the last time you saw the Senate adjourn at what three o'clock on the last day? I don't know if I don't ever remember that. Yeah, and they really anything. hadn't done anything all week. Except, right. I mean, they made a they deal. They did the FRA. So, yeah, so they were in for like ten minutes. Right. <laughs> but the thing now we can maybe transition a little bit into right to work, as you kind of mentioned on the outset. You do do lobbying for the AFL-CIO. Sure. You are kind of on record. I think when you were in the state house of not being a big proponent of right to work and you're republican and right right to work is 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 shorthand that proponents use for a bill that bars arrangements where workers are forced to pay union dues if a majority has voted to organize see i've I've gotten it down right right, right. Um, and it's a deal between employers and the union so they don't have to do it i mean an employer can say i'm not going to do this. They can do that now. So I think my first question I have is, and I'm probably, I mean, I asked this to Ron Richard. I've asked this to, you know, all the senators in that room. I know that at least 10 or 11 or 12 of those senators that voted to PQ right to work were in the House in 2007. I can't imagine they weren't paying attention to what happened to the Senate when a bunch of bills got PQ'd. Did they just not believe that the consequences of the PQ were going to happen? Or were they just so, like, in the House bubble that maybe they didn't know what happens when you antagonize the Democratic leadership like that? Well, I I think you take a look at the people that signed the PQ, and I think some of them really wholeheartedly believe right to work is good public policy. Okay? And they think that it's the issue is so important that it's worth you know, disrupting the Senate process. And I totally respect that opinion. I disagree with it, uh, but I respect it. Uh, And then I think there's another group of people that are for right to work that didn't want to break the process up, but they were a little concerned of the Republican politics that occur, right? I mean, if you you had somebody that says, oh, you know what, even though I'm for right to work, I'm not going to sign a PQ, then some of the, what I believe some of the extreme in our party would say, yep, there you go, they're not for right to work. They wouldn't sign a PQ, so therefore we're against them. And so I think when you figure in the political side of it and then people who sincerely uh, feel like it's the right thing. Then you had a group of Republicans that didn't sign the PQ, too, that are just against it for either procedural or policy reasons. Now, uh, you mentioned before when on the air, and I've heard this from other people, too, that right to work while um, that it's really not 
quote, a conservative issue as much as a it's become more of a Republican issue. Yeah, it's it's to me, I look at it as a political issue, not a conservative issue, because was this pressed by donors or how did this come about, especially the timing? You know, I think I think, you know, I'm not sure why it was pressed, you know, whether it be grassroots or donors or some people feel very strongly about it. But when you look at the policy of right to work, there's no way you can call it a conservative policy. If I'm an employer and I want to have an all-union workforce, why shouldn't I be able to do that? This bill would bar that. Uh, Why in the world, uh, if unions are representing the people and the, the union representation results in better workplace safety, better benefits, better salary, and the employee chooses to take that job, why shouldn't they help pay for the representation? So there's a whole host of, and that would, what I consider that, that creates a freeloader system. So there's a whole host of anti-conservative principles at work. When's the last time this supermajority of Republicans went in and said, we want to get involved in a contract negotiation between employer and employee? Or when did we get involved, uh, this supermajority of Republicans get involved in telling an, an employer, hey, you, you can't do that even if you want to in your own private business. And so it's just not, it's really not consistent. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, there are some people that feel strongly in them. I respect their opinion. I just uh, agreeably disagree. But looking at it tac- tactically, which regardless of what side which one's on, why did Richard and others press it early in the week rather than waiting till late in the week when A, Senate, uh, the Senate President Pro Tem Tom Dempsey, who was on the fence and eventually voted against Right to Work, would have been out of town, but B, um, there would have been they could have got other stuff through before. Because that's mean, what happened in two thousand seven when they when they PQ'd English as the official language and an abortion related bill. They did it on the last day of session so they could pass other things at sure. the beginning of the week. No, no, I think uh, I think their goal probably was to do it at the end of the session, uh, and I think the Democrats, uh, to their um, credit realized that the senate was going to what i would call clear the calendar get all the significant stuff done and then go to it and then i think what happened is the democrats just said no we're not gonna let anything go pat and i think the last bill they let through really was the municipal court reform bill but after that it totally came to a stop i do want to talk about labor strategy without getting into too many nitty-gritty details because i know that you're probably not going to reveal your top secret plan <laughs> um and if you do then... my plan is to make sure they don't get a hundred yeah nine, okay obviously i mean I, there's no the secret house. about yeah. my plan yeah. in the but house i want to talk about the senate vote and in knowing that you know there's not enough votes to override in the house and senate yet but when i see the people that voted for right to work when i see people like Jeannie riddle Kurt Schaefer, Eric Schmidt, David Pierce, um, you know, even like Wayne Wallingford as well. I mean, those are all people who have either been endorsed by the AFL-CIO at some point or who have, in Riddle's case, had voted against right to work the year before or in Wallingford's case has voted for, you know, against anti-union bills in the past. I just have to wonder, was labor strategy not persuasive to those types of people or were they under the pressures that they – you know, statewide ambitions or maybe caucus pressures? Like, what happened? Yeah, I, I think it's a combination of both. I mean, I can tell you, I, I think that organized labor is disappointed in a few people. I mean, I think certainly, uh, you know, the the race between uh, Senator Riddle and, and Ed Schieffer, I think organized labor treated uh, 
uh, Senator Riddle very, very fairly. Uh, and I think they were disappointed in her vote. And I think they've expressed their disappointment to her. And, you know, she has her reasons. I think Senator Wallingford, you know, I think the unions have endorsed him in the past and been supportive. But you're not going to agree with somebody on every issue. If you if you remember in committee, he voted no on paycheck protection and it uh, and it failed in committee. And so, you know, I, I, I think clearly there's some disappointment. But I, what I would tell organized labor is, listen, a lot of your members are conservative. Okay, smaller government, uh, pro-gun, pro-life, and you know we need to keep working. And the, and the reality is, we've got Republican. This is a Republican state in the General Assembly, and it's not changing anytime soon. And so uh, I think you've got to continue to work with Republicans to explain to them why it's not a conservative issue, and explain to them why unions are good for the state, and and hopefully that carries the day. We've heard a lot of anti. Uh, right to work stuff on in the last few minutes. But I did want to play a clip from Senator Bob Onder, who's from Lake St. Louis, who actually ran in a three-way race as a pro-right to work candidate, even though St. Charles County, I think, has a pretty large amount of union people. The strength of the unions there is kind of debatable. Let's play that clip right now. Well, 60% of folks in my district, um, at least who voted in my election, believe that right to work is the right thing to do for the state of Missouri to get things going, to get economic activity going. I think Monday's uh, location of the Volvo plant in South Carolina illustrates vividly that if we are ever to have projects like that, that's 4,000 jobs, a $500 million investment, Missouri wasn't even in consideration for that as long as we're not a right-to-work state. So two things to respond to there. One, he's basically saying that even though people told him that unions were strong in his race and that, you know, he should be mindful of this issue, he was pro-right-to-work anyways, and just wanted you to respond to his argument that, you know, in that particular instance with the Volvo plant, Missouri wasn't at a competitive situation? Because that, that does get brought up a lot about competitiveness. Well, I mean, I would tell you, I think Senator Under underestimates uh, his likability and what a good candidate he was. He got six, whatever, 60 percent in a primary. But I, I suspect that all those votes weren't based on whether he was for or against right to work. I think it was for because he's a good social conservative. You know, he's a, he's a physician. You know, he's a post-Obamacare. I think there's a lot of reasons why he got 60 percent. I suspect that right to work is not one of them. Uh, I think if you probably polled that in his district, I, I, which I've never done, I suspect it's not a 60% in favor issue. But, you know, who's, you know, I mean, it may or may not. As far as, you know, businesses choose locations for all kinds of reasons, you know, tax policy, infrastructure, trained workforce, health care. You know, I, I think right to work could be one of them uh, uh, that, that people look at. But, but the reality is, is I just assume have a higher paid, well-trained workforce here. I'm not, I'm, I'm not thrilled about filling up the state of Missouri with 10, 11, $12 an hour jobs. You know, those, those are the types of jobs that people can't support a family on. They and, can't even be in the middle class. And, and, and do they get health care? Yeah. And so, uh, you will always be able to identify one or two P businesses that say, I'm not considering Missouri because of this. But let's not forget the bigger picture when you look at Ford's expansion and, and all the good things that we feel like are going on in Missouri. Uh, I'm, I'm a big believer that there's a lot of things that labor and business can agree on uh, that are far less controversial. And why don't we work on those things before uh, we do anything else? So, I mean, but, but you, you remember when, whenever I, I grew up, 
I grew up in Perryville, okay, which is not a really big union area, but I represented Southern St. Francis County. And from the day I got there, I was supportive of labor. I would, I would didn't do everything they wanted me to, but I was supportive of some of their core things like prevailing wage and right to work. And it, it boils down that I had friends and, 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 and family that would, that are labor workers and they're not rich. Okay, they're just trying to have a good family supporting job and they're conservative. They vote Republican, too. And so um, I'm just not going to be against those people. Not whenever I was speaker, not when I was floor leader. And certainly I'm glad to represent them now. Now, politically, how do you think this might play out? I mean, we, we know, OK, passed both chambers, right. but not by voter veto proof margins. The governor's going to veto it. Right. Uh, there's probably going to be a fight this summer. Uh, we've had Robert Cornejo, who's a state rep from St. Charles on the show, right. and he had voted against right to work, but he also said that he was part of a group of House members who would switch and vote in favor of right to work in an override setting. So my question for you is, as you're lobbying people over the summer, um, how is that going to play out? Are you concerned about uh, such a block of legislators who maybe have been with you in the general in the session, but who will switch for the veto session? Well, I would, I would one uh, representative Corneo is a good personal friend, and I think he does a fantastic job. Uh, I think he's wrong on this one. I think politically, anytime you start switching votes, I, I, it's hard to defend the voters switching your vote. I mean, because if it was good enough to vote no, you know, in May, then what's changed on the same bill in? Uh, in September. So I don't think it's a good political move to switch votes. Uh, ask John Kerry how that turned out for him, uh, you know, with his flip-flopping. Uh, but, I mean, my job and the job of working families across the state is just to, to continue to work with the people that have stood by us and educate them, provide the information they need, because there will be a barrage on the op- opposing side. And, and I think there may be one, two, three, four maybe that that might potentially switch if they could be the 109th but you know i visit with every republican that voted no in the last two days of session and i feel confident that they're going to stand by the the working families uh that they were sent there to represent now i mean we're talking about the house here but i for for right to work fans i think the senate is almost impossible calculus for them because Let's just say for argument's sake that Senator Tom Dempsey switches his vote for whatever reason, which I'm not saying he's going to. Sure. But, you know, he was one of the people that voted against it. You have three other people who voted against right to work who have either in like, for example, Paul Whelan's case is so much on the record of being against right to work that if he voted for right to work, it would be a monumental flip flop that would probably cost him his election. And then you have Ryan Sylvie and Gary Romine who are in districts with Probably a lot of union members. Yeah, and, and, and Ryan, and, and then Ryan who are, who are running yeah. running for re-election this yeah, time. Right. I don't see how the votes are there in the Senate this yeah, time. I, I don't believe the votes are there in the Senate or the House. But we can't take anything for granted. Right. You know, we've got to continue to work uh, with these people who put their neck. And and in addition to all the Democrats who opposed it as well. So you you don't want to. You know, we're talking about Republicans, and obviously I was hired to to develop a strategy with Republicans, but. Uh, you know, it's it's a team effort, Republicans and Democrats. But yeah, I mean, I think the math to get there is very, very difficult. Which, which to me, begged the question: Why, why do this? Well, um, as you were lobbying to against right to work, 
who will you be facing? I mean, who who are there particular groups or individuals who will be pressing the case on the other side that, in effect, you'll be in the ring with, so to speak? Yeah, I mean, I th- you know, it's kind of a shadowy group of people. I'm not really sure who lobbies on the other side, which is which is interesting. Now, I've heard that there's some of them are Republican donors. Yeah, I mean, I, I clearly there are Republican donors who who advocate for right to work. Uh, but but I will tell you this, and I tell you about the people th- that are even opposed to me. I do not believe that people are pro right to work because a donor asked them to be pro right to work. Okay, I, I just don't believe it. I think if you look at people like uh, you know Bob Onder, if you look at people like Doc Brown, if you look at people like Ron Richard, and and the whole host of Republicans that voted for it, they voted for it because they believe in it, not because some donor told them they need to believe in it. Yeah. So we only have a couple minutes left. I was one of the things we didn't touch on in the first part of the show is the fact there is a new House Speaker, Todd Richardson of Poplar Bluff. First of all, I want to just argue and I want to just settle an argument that Joe and I have been having the last couple of days. <laughs> There's right. been this running assumption that since Todd Richardson is from Poplar Bluff and replacing a St. Louis area House Speaker, Deal. that somehow the St. Louis area is not going to be as well served anymore. And what I have kind of said as a counterpoint is, number one, there is evidence of Todd Richards sponsoring legislation to help the St. Louis area in the fact that he sponsored the bill that enabled the arts tax vote a couple years ago. You have a situation where Ron Richard back in 2007 was the main sponsor of the land assemblage tax credits, which is controversial, but, you know, it showcases an interest in St. Louis policy. And in your case, even though you're from Perryville, you were one of the main backers of local control of the sure. St. Louis Police Department, which I'm sure brought you more trouble than positive stuff. Well, so, it's not something my caucus made yeah. on their priority list, so, I can tell you that much oh, for who's sure. right? Is Joe right or oh, am I wait right a minute. on this? But my contention yeah. is, without boring people with details, is that when you don't have somebody who's from the backyard, and for what all we know is that Richardson may have uh, sponsored that because he was asked to by Deal or others— so as a Perryville person who now also owns a house in St. Louis County, I'm just interested in your take of will those – my contention is that gradually the next couple of years you're going to see the influence of the major Republican leaders shift from those who were from St. Louis to um, outstate. Well, Joe, I'm not sure about that because, you know, you had – Catherine Hanaway, who was from St. Louis, right. and you had Rod Jetton, which was from Southeast. Then you had Ron Richard, which was Southwest. Then you had myself, which was Southeast. Then you have two lawyers from St. Louis right, and Tim right. Jones. So St. Louis has done pretty good. Oh, yeah. Even though the caucus is overwhelmingly rural. Yeah. So I think the caucus picks who they think is the best person to lead, regardless of geography. Um, I believe that St. Louis will be equally served. And maybe I'm naive, okay? Maybe so I'm, I'm going to go down too. with you. And now, Joe, don't be mad at me. <laughs> I'm not uh, mad. Hey. But, uh, but I, I, think, I think Todd is a really talented guy who sees the big picture. And I, I think any leader of this state needs to realize what a huge economic engine St. Louis is. And, the, and if St. Louis does well, the entire state will do well. And I, I feel that. I felt that when I was a speaker, and I, and I still feel that way today. So I believe that if Mayor Slay or County Executive Stinger calls the speaker and says, we have a real problem here, we need your help, mm-hmm. I don't think Todd, I need to call him the speaker, will handle it any different than Speaker Deal did. Now, I really the, don't. The big parting question, though, 
do you th- I, I, everybody I've talked to Republican Democrat tells me that they really like Todd Richardson that he's very well grounded very talented an excellent communicator very fair Everybody I, I, likes an incoming speaker. I, everyone likes an incoming speaker. <laughs> everyone will not I've laugh told, at his And jokes. actually, he called me and I told him, I was like, it, right now, you've got more friends than you'll that, ever have. Yeah. <laughs> that was going to be my question because I know full well that people come into the speakership with a lot of promise and expectations. Sure. And, you know, as time goes on, you run into controversies. You run into... You make enemies. You, make, you get into it's, personality conflicts. It's impossible conflicts. not to. So... Is Todd Richardson going to be able to deal with some of these inevitable roadblocks effectively, or do you think that it's going to be a situation like even though he's like beloved now by 2018, he might just want to get as far away from Jefferson City what as I, possible? What I told Todd uh, was read the clippings whenever I became speaker, read them when Ron Richards became speaker, when Tim Jones became speaker, when John Dale became speaker, and you'll find that the clippings to all of them with on Facebook, social media, are all very similar to what you're hearing right now. That they walked on water. <laughs> That's right. And, 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 I, and I told him that, I, I told him that because I, I, you know, I want him to know that he will make mistakes. He will slip up from time to time, uh, and you just have to do your best. Uh, but I, I believe he's unbelievably talented. I, I don't know if you remember this, but in that same opening day speech uh, yes, that I, I gave, that. I actually told a story about Todd Richardson, how his dad basically came from the minority, one vote from becoming Speaker of the House, which is unbelievable. So I had him come to the caucus and tell the story, and he told us the whole story in about 30 minutes, and not a single person in that room lost attention okay and I, in a normal caucus meeting now this within is mark, five, mark, yeah, richardson. mark richardson and yeah. within five minutes of a normal caucus meeting everybody's ready to get out the door todd uh mark richardson told the story about how he almost became speaker and then when we were done with that i said todd why don't you and your dad come up to the dais with me and i let todd run the dais and introduce his dad and so you know to see him become speaker and have his mom and his dad up there was very very uh, prideful from my perspective because I just know his dad and I know how proud he is and I know that Todd was able to achieve something that his dad never was able to but my, my point to that story is his dad was unbelievably talented and Todd is as talented as they come and I think he will make mistakes but I think he's got unbelievable potential. Well I can just say that I managed to talk with Mark Richardson soon after he was uh, uh, his son was inaugurated and he was as happy as happy can be oh, so I'm I, yeah, I can. I think that's putting it mildly. Yeah, I mean, the best part of me becoming speaker was just the look on my face because on my dad's face because my dad used to take me up to the Capitol when I was in eighth grade and we would lobby on behalf of optometry stuff and you know we could never get into the speaker's office we didn't know anybody and just to walk into a state rep's office was almost overwhelming and so for him to be able to see his son yeah. achieve that I'm sure Todd and Mark sense of Mark's history it was just an unbelievable day and I'm thrilled for him. Absolutely. Well, thank you again for coming on our show. We, we really appreciate it. To close us out, you can read all of our stories at stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. You can follow Joe on Twitter at... Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And is it worth following you on Twitter anymore? I don't no, think you've tweeted in you know, years. I, I, don't, I don't because it's like the Wild Wild West on Twitter. <laughs> you know, I mean, people have fake Twitter pages and, you know, and you're just like, and, and I, I just think I'll just stay out of that realm. I'll leave that up to you guys. Just as I, as I always say, just send him a, a, a pigeon telegram at this point. Absolutely. And until next time, so long. 
Yeah.